This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org. From KVPR in Fresno. On this week's The Other California, one family's Dust Bowl roots. My dad was a farm laborer, so he milked cows and did dirt farming, whatever was around. And how water and racist housing covenants dictated where people lived and worked. The single largest dairy in the state of California was black owned by the Williams family in Fermi. It's all about migration and the paths some people are forced to take as we return to the small rural town of Chowchilla in Madera County. I'm Alice Daniel, and this is... El Otro California. I live... California, El Otro. California, Chia. El Otro California. The California. California. I live... I live... I live in the other California. Last week on The Other California, we met Steve Branco, whose father, Dan Branco, helped start the Chowchilla Stampede back in 1958. Branco is a real fan of his Western way of living and says families like his have remained in Chowchilla for generations. Not very many of us left. We, you know, if you look at the sign out front, it says Chowchilla, unique way of living. <laughs> We're pretty unique. <laughs> and some of those families came to Chowchilla early on. Remember those palm trees that line the main street of town where the cattle drive takes place every year? Well, they were planted in 1912, the result of a land speculator's vision. His name was Orlando Allison Robertson, and he purchased a portion of an original Spanish land grant called the Chowchilla Ranch. That land was originally settled by the Chowchilla Band of Yokuts and taken during the early to mid-1800s by the Spanish. Robertson divided his purchase into tracts for sale to farmers, with a piece of it saved for a town. One of those families who purchased land, the Teals. I meet 84-year-old Don Teal at his home in Chowchilla. He says his German grandfather's house still stands, just off the main street. Just a kind of a hump in the road and sacred kind of goes to the right, and there's a house there that my grandpa built in 1910. One of the first to be built. The walls are that thick because he thought he was still in North Dakota where it got cold. Don says his grandparents sold 150 horses and left the cold weather of North Dakota to move here. They came by, uh, had two touring cars. They put tents up every night. It took them, I think, two months to get here, if I remember right. They made their living running a dairy. Everybody did in those days, Don says. Everybody had 10, 15, 20 cows. They had, yeah, their bigger, bigger dairies were maybe 50, because they didn't have machines in those days, still milking by hand. If you wanted to have more cows, you had to have a bigger family. All the milk went to a Danish creamery in town. When Don was little, he got to know many of the farmers because his dad drove around to all the ranches and picked up the 10-gallon cans of milk. We had the uh, Crutchets, we had the Ryans, we had uh, a lot of old-timers, they just had dairies. Don was born in 1938, and he says his dad didn't get drafted during World War II because of his job. Cotton was the main crop back then, and when Don was six or seven years old, he says some ranches used World War II German prisoners to picket by hand. 
They picked cotton right behind our house. Our neighbor had cotton, and they were picking. I'd come home from school, run out to a sack, and pick enough to make enough go, go down to Matley and Guy's get me a Pepsi and a bag of peanuts. The man watching the German prisoners would tell Don, You pick over here today, those guys are kind of ornery. A number of the storefronts in downtown Chowchilla are empty today, but after the war, the city was bustling. A creamery, a cotton mill, and a cotton oil mill created thousands of jobs. At one time, this town, because everybody bragged about it and laughed about it, had 20 bars and 20 churches on every corner. Every of a bar and a church on every corner. A bar and a church on every corner. Don's wife, Mary Dixon Teal, also remembers the town as self-sustaining. We didn't go out of town to shop because it was here. We had dress shops. Anything you needed was in Chowchilla. Mary's family moved here in 1939 when Mary was a baby. She says her parents were Dust Bowl migrants from Ada, Oklahoma. All her dad knew was farming, so they came here in search of work. Both were part Cherokee and were originally from Tennessee. Mary says John Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath, rang true for her parents. The fact that how they got here and how hard it was for them to exist, especially with a family. And my dad was a farm laborer, so he milked cows and did dirt farming or whatever was around. There were six children, and the family moved from one ranch to another. Wherever my dad worked, there was usually a house to live in. Mary's mom took an ironing when she could. They grew up without much, Mary says, but she loved Chowchilla anyway. I loved it. I've always been very shy, so, but everybody was a friend. But like so many towns back then, Chowchilla wasn't a friend to everyone. Its racist housing covenants kept certain groups of people out. It's why there was once a thriving black settlement just a couple miles from town. KVPR's Kathleen Schock takes us to Fairmead. I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but honestly, Fairmead isn't much to look at. It's basically just a couple of churches, a school, and a collection of homes surrounded by agricultural fields. I've probably driven past it a hundred times without even noticing the small sign on the highway that says Fairmead. Arguably its biggest claim to recent fame was the old mammoth orange hamburger stand on Highway 99, and it was torn down more than 20 years ago. We moved all the chairs around here. I'm here in Fairmead at the home of Barbara Nelson to attend the monthly board meeting of Fairmead Community and Friends, a nonprofit advocacy group Barbara co-founded with Vicki Ortiz and Elaine Moore. Elaine lets herself in the back door, decked out in a long red skirt for Valentine's Day, precariously balancing a homemade cherry cobbler. I had to go change clothes before I got here. I spilled the cobbler juice all down the front of my oh, jumper. You, you did cobbler, huh? Yeah, I have. There are about 10 of us here. Not a big crowd, but more than enough to fill Barbara's small home. It feels more like a potluck than a board meeting of people trying to improve their community. The eclectic group, young, old, black, white, Latino, 
has the easy rapport of old friends. Because Fairmead is classified as a census-designated place, there's no mayor or city council. Instead, there's Barbara, Vicky, and Elaine. These women are the voice of the roughly 1,100 people who call Fairmead home. Elaine, who is married to a longtime almond farmer, describes it as community service rooted in friendship. All you have to do is let them know you need help, and they're here. Yeah. You know, whether it's a disaster or it's a happy time and we're going to have a party, it's just, it's a camaraderie, it's true friendship. Doesn't matter what color your skin is, what language you have. These three women, one white, one black, and one uh, Hispanic, have, have kind of become the soul and the face of Fairmead. That's Michael Isinger. He's a historian and cultural anthropologist who wrote a book called Fairmead, A Century of Change. The primary focus, and especially of these three ladies, was to try to build community. They weren't worried about politics. They weren't worried about anything else. They wanted to build a sense of community. But in order to understand Fairmead today, it's helpful to start at the beginning. Because as Michael writes in his book, the history of Fairmead is both unique and emblematic. In the early 1900s, large companies based in LA and San Francisco owned much of the agricultural land in the San Joaquin Valley. And in an effort to turn a profit, a movement emerged among these companies to develop small towns, known as colonies, and sell off the plots to family farmers. In Fairmead's case, the parcels were marketed to Mennonite families in Germany and Russia on the promise of ample sunshine, fertile soil, and abundant water. It was a planned community. It had a hotel where the, the first couple of years on their Thanksgiving dinners, they had anywhere between five and 1,500 people coming to have Thanksgiving dinner at this hotel. Dignitaries from all over the state would stop. They had the, a French chef they brought in from Paris. I mean, this is, we're talking Fairmead, right? In his book, Michael writes that at its start, Fairmead's future was as bright as any community in California. So you're probably asking yourself, what happened? The answer, at least according to him, is water. Fairmead doesn't have a lake, and there are no rivers running through town. So all that abundant water promised to those European settlers had to be pumped from the ground, which worked fine at first, but by the 1920s, farmers were having to dig their wells hundreds of feet into the earth to suck up the rapidly shrinking aquifer. At a certain point, it all just stopped making sense. And they reached a point where most of the whites that lived there said, to hell with this, and they bailed. And we had massive white plate. Chowchilla was being built just north of it. It started just a few years after Fairmead, but it had water. So all the whites moved from Fairmead into Chowchilla. This is where Fairmead's fate took a turn. With the white population gone, along with much of the groundwater, property values plummeted. But a speculator named Jacob Yagel saw an opportunity. He bought up most of Fairmead and sold the plots directly to black farmers. Now, this was a big deal because at that time, most communities used restrictive housing covenants to prevent Black people, along with many other ethnic groups, from buying property. But according to Michael, Fairmead meant Black people could own their own homes and establish their own communities. 
thanks to Jacob Yagel. They loved this man dearly because he would sell them their property, uh, their, you know, the, the, his property at market rates. He didn't mark it up. He sold it to them fairly. He treated them fairly. He treated them well. And that's how, the, for example, the Williams family were able to acquire enough land around Fairmead that by the 1950s, they had the largest dairy in California. The single largest dairy in the state of California was black owned by the Williams family in Fairmead. Michael says it was a smart use of the land because dairies didn't need as much water as crops. So that's how it came to be that on this dry, dusty land a few miles south of Chowchilla, a thriving black enclave was built. From the 1920s through the 1960s, Fairmead remained predominantly black, home to families like Barbara Nelson's. A lot of black folks started coming, moving here, buying property. My in-laws is one of them, the, the Nelsons, the Mitchells, the Amys, the Williams, all these families came. And there was uh, one guy had all this land and he sold it to them. Everybody, they was buying 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 acres, land was cheap. And then um, cotton was here, people were picking cotton. I grew up picking cotton, cutting grapes, because I tell my kids now that we were the farm workers, the African-Americans, we worked out here. The story of Fairmead reminds us that the Valley's agricultural history involves so much more than those iconic Dorothea Lange photos of white migrants driven west by the Dust Bowl. In reality, many people, including white, black, Japanese, Mexican, and Filipino farm workers, labor to turn this region into the world's food basket. But things started to shift in Fairmead following the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. According to Michael Isinger, that's when Fairmead's population started to transform from predominantly black to predominantly Hispanic. Why? Because in 1965, Chowchilla had to allow its first black people to move in. And so people were had, had options. Whereas now these poor communities are, are absorbing a new population. And they are having the same issues of water and isolation and uh, food deserts that, that these earlier communities struggled with. Barbara Nelson wasn't around for the shift in population that Michael just described. She and her husband Clyde left the valley in the mid-60s and called the Bay Area home for roughly 40 years. But after Clyde retired, they decided to move back to Fairmead to care for their aging parents. And when they arrived, Barbara was shocked by what she found. But when I came back to Fairmead in 2005 and we didn't have a store and I noticed family just was pitiful. I hadn't seen no change. And I said, God, I need to make a difference. I'm down here. So I got with another resident and we started talking about it. And we came up with this group. Barbara's made a lot of, uh, of friends when she started mm -hmm. this up. That's Vicki Ortiz from Fairmead Community and Friends. She moved here because it was one of the few places in the Valley where she could still find affordable property. But she quickly learned that living in such a rural area meant the community was largely on its own when it came to solving problems. Being unincorporated, you don't know who to go to. If a fire hydrant or water opens up, they can't get a hold of the county. They can't get a hold of fire. But Barbara, <laughs> you know, what do we do? So, you know, we start looking for numbers and, and, and do that so they know who to go to. You know, they can't find Barbara. Barbara say, we'll call Vicky or, 
and, and you know, we, we connect them. Over the years, Fairmead Community and Friends have taken on a lot more than fire hydrants with their advocacy. When the only community well went dry, they helped secure federal grants to rebuild the water system. Then when high-speed rail announced the tracks would be running right through Fairmead, they fought successfully to keep the community whole. You know, we, we didn't want to threaten or make a stink or anything, but you know, when they originally started, they were going to cut out the church, they were going to cut out the school, and then with us saying something, trying to be the voice, they pushed it farther. It's getting late by the time the evening wraps up. They insist I take a bowl to go of Elaine's cherry cobbler. But before I leave, I have a parting question for Barbara. As one of the only residents of Fairmead who could remember when it was an almost all-Black settlement, I asked if she felt an obligation to preserve that history. I, I do, you know, but it's not many of us left here. Most of them moving out, so that's why during the Black History Time, when we have to keep that alive and keep going with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important to show that we was here, was the one who planted the cotton and did our part here and fair me to make it what it is too. We don't want to ever forget that. And not forgetting means, for her, telling the stories year after year. For The Other California, I'm Kathleen Schock in Fairmead. We've heard about who lived in Chowchilla when the town first started and who wasn't allowed. Nowadays, plenty of people are moving here, from retirees who want to live in a gated community with a golf course nearby, to immigrants starting or buying businesses. Like 40-year-old Ali Saleh, who was originally from Yemen. Ali purchased the state food supermarket on the palm tree-lined main street a few years ago. Hola. ¿Cómo están? Depending on the customer, he speaks English, Spanish, or Arabic. There's a small Palestinian-American community here. But the Yemeni community? Well, it's just him and his family, the only Yemenis in Chowchilla. At least that's what he guesses based on the public schools where his kids go and the mosque his family attends in nearby Madeira. The story of Ali is one that resonates with Yemeni Americans all over the San Joaquin Valley. If you go to a local grocery or convenience store in any of the small rural towns here, there's a good chance it will be run by a Yemeni. It's kind of a niche. It's how this newer immigrant community is making its way here. In fact, there are nine state food supermarkets in the valley, all owned by Yemenis. Ali came to the U.S. when he was 17 to work with his older brother, who already owned a convenience store in the rural valley town of Huron. A few years later, they moved to another rural town, Avenal, where they ran a 99-cent store. When Family Dollar moved in, they couldn't compete. And we stay over there, like, maybe four or five years. And after that, we moved to Colinga, I think one year over there. And after Colinga, Fireball. I'm from Fireball here. They kept moving from one small town to another in the valley. Because the first store is so, too small. So we get them bigger, bigger stores, better. <laughs> 
bigger and better. The work is hard, seven days a week. Oh, we never close here, never. For Christmas is a busy day here because everybody close and we, we still open. He likes Chowchilla. He purchased a house recently and he says he's staying put. That, that's it, it's over. Right now, everybody with me, together. By everybody, he means his wife and their eight children. Even though Ali has been in the U.S. for years, his family hasn't. There's a long-running civil war in Yemen, and it's complicated and very expensive to bring family members to the U.S. Except for one older daughter, the family only arrived in California about two years ago. Ali lets me ride along with him to pick up his son, seven-year-old Mohammed, from elementary school. I ask him to describe his dad's job. He uh, scan things a lot. Mohammed didn't know any English before he arrived here. Now he can sum up his father's work in one sentence. He scans things a lot. We drop Muhammad off at their home, and I meet Ali's wife, Mofida. Hello. She's holding a baby boy. Two little boys, two and four, run around her. But she still goes to the fridge and pours me an orange soda. Mofida doesn't speak English, but her daughter Fatima does. Fatima is a senior and is finishing high school online. She came to the valley ahead of the rest of the family and lived in Firebaugh with her uncle's family, while her dad started the new business. Now, she says, It's better. We were like away from my dad. Now we're together. Seeing him every day, it makes me feel happy. Still, it's challenging being the only Yemeni family in Chowchilla. But here we don't, we don't have nobody. We're just like, we're lonely. It's one of the compromises the family makes in order to be together and make a living. Ali has to establish a successful business as a first-generation immigrant so that his children can do well here. He says he wants them to find meaningful work. Anything like my daughter, she want to do teacher. This is, you know, to help people, you know, and make good money, better money. And who knows, now that Ali's family is in Chowchilla, other Yemeni Americans may follow. Before we leave Chowchilla, let's go directly across the street from State Foods and meet another immigrant business owner, who, by the way, shops at Ali's grocery store. KVPR's Madi Balaños introduces us to Maria Martinez's taco shop. Before we get to the food, let's go back a few decades to when Maria first arrived in Chowchilla. She came from Jalisco, Mexico, and worked in the fields. After a decade of picking almonds and oranges, she took another job at the one McDonald's in town. Every day on her way to work, she passed by a little standalone shop with outdoor seating called the Chowchilla Taco Shop. She passed by every day in the mornings, and she liked the place. One day, someone told her they were selling it, so she did everything she could to make sure she got it, she says. Her childhood dream was to own a restaurant. Her and her siblings cooked since they were kids, she says. They learned as children, and now, she says, they continue their parents' traditions. For 13 years, Maria has flipped tortillas and folded burritos. She now feels at home in this kitchen, but she says that wasn't always the case. 
Opening a business in another country without knowing the language, well, that's a big risk, she says. But it all turned out okay. She thanks God. I try the tacos de asada along with an icy cold orange jarrito. She gives me three, but I can only eat two. They're delicious, but they're bigger than your average street taco. The taco shop is open every day except Sunday. Maria runs it by herself, but when it gets too busy, she says her two sisters stop by to help. Sometimes they get there and people are already waiting for them to open, she says. Apart from tacos, burritos, chile verde, and more traditional Mexican dishes, she also makes American fast food. And it's popular. Robin Dean lives down the street and says it's her favorite place to grab a quick bite. She walks here often with her three granddaughters. They have the best hamburgers and fries in town. Rainy Navarro pulls up to the taco shop in her car. She's ordering asada fries for her son, who turns 16 today. The carne asada fries. My kids love the carne asada fries. Willie Fonska moved to Chowchilla for Merced four years ago. He found the taco shop when he was looking for authentic burgers near his new home. Um, I really just get the hamburgers here because I think it's better than like a McDonald's or something like that. You know, it just feels a little more homemade. So, yeah. And for Maria, who worked at McDonald's right before she started her restaurant, that's a compliment worth celebrating. For the other California, I'm Adi Bolaños in Chowchilla. And that's the other California. Next week, we take a break from small-town rural life and hear from our KVPR reporters about what brought them or their families to the San Joaquin Valley. In the first episode, I told you how I got here. Now, they'll share their origin stories. I think you'll like it. This episode was produced by me, Alice Daniel, mixing and sound design by Rob Spate, with editorial help from Polly Stryker, web support from Alex Burke, Technical support from Don Weaver. Joe Moore is our president and general manager. Special thanks to the KVPR news team. Madi Bolaños, Sarith Hawk, Carrie Klein, and Kathleen Schock. And musicians Omar Nuray, Juan Morales, and Jim Karagosian. You've been listening to The Other California. <laughs>